Well, I do hope that you have enjoyed the uh, study of the book of Matthew as much as I have. It has been a delight for me to uh, see Jesus over and over and over and see his uh, reaction uh, to people and to see others really reaction to him as well. As we have looked at the gospel, there have been at least four kinds of people who have interacted with Jesus. Uh, We've seen all four of them in action. The first is the the group that we love to hate, the Pharisees. They are almost always, well, they are always antagonistic to Jesus. And when they see Jesus, there is always some kind of conflict. Uh, The last one that we saw, they, they traveled 60 miles to confront Jesus about the fact that his disciples hadn't washed their hands. Like, hey, you had dinner, you didn't wash your hands, what's going on? Now, if there was ever a significant thing to talk to Jesus about, that probably wasn't it. Then the second group is the group of disciples. Now, disciples are, we're much more positive about disciples. They're the ones that hang out with Jesus and they see him all the time. And the thing about them that I've come to notice is that they are always mystified by Jesus. He surprises them at every turn, so much so that the last time we saw them in action, they saw Jesus, and they said, it's a ghost. Now, they're always making guesses, but that one wasn't very close. The third group that we see interact with Jesus are the crowds, and the crowds are Uh, are interesting because we see a different crowd in most every story. Jesus is a different place. There's different crowds. So crowd after crowd after crowd, and all of them surround Jesus, and he engages them in uh, a, a positive and meaningful way most of the time. There have been a couple times when they've come to Jesus and begged him to leave because he scared them. And then the fourth group, and the fourth group is the one I I want to make sure that you don't forget about. And the fourth group is the outcasts. They are the ones that most people do forget about. They're hurt or ignored or cast away by the people who are on the inside. They're the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the sinners, and the unclean. We last saw them in the preceding verses that Scott already referred to when the woman uh, who was an outsider came and asked Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. Jesus is always interacting with people who are on the outside. And I suspect that we have all four of those groups represented here this morning as well. I'm sure that Though none of us would admit it, there's a Pharisee among us who with your lips draw near to God, but your heart is far from Him. Sundays are for you a performance, hoping that people will recognize how religious you actually are. I hope there are disciples here, people who are trying to figure out Jesus, 
people who are routinely um, maybe frustrated by him or surprised by him, such that we have to continually go back and back and back and try and figure him out. Jesus will force those disciples to trust him in uncomfortable ways, and I suspect he's doing that for some of you. There is really among us, I'm sure, maybe most of us, would fall in the category of the crowd. We are those who follow Jesus around, and some of us with good motives, some with mixed motives. I don't know. Some of us are pretty convinced, some of us maybe not so much. We're waiting for Jesus to convince us. And then, I'm sure that there are among us those who are throwaways, who are outcasts, who have been convinced by maybe your parents or a spouse or possibly an employer, you just don't belong here. Maybe it's just a voice in your head that tells you that same story over and over that you're not worth much and you're dispensable. And while it's not that hard to imagine that there are some other people around here in those other categories, I want to encourage you to put yourself in the spot where you think you are and watch Jesus in action with people like you this morning. And when you do, you'll find that Jesus is generous and Jesus is lavish in His grace for everyone who will come. That is everyone then but the ultra-religious Pharisee who doesn't come. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 15. I'll begin reading in verse 29. And in Matthew chapter 15, verse 29, we'll see that Jesus is generous with his compassion and with his love. So Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. Jesus went from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking and the crippled healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. 
They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, they got in a boat and went to the region of Magadan. And so here, we see something we think we've seen before. But I don't want you to miss the point that Jesus lavishes grace on all who will come to him. Jesus will lavish his grace on you if you come. So look at, look at the beginning, because the beginning does give us a really strong hint about what Jesus is doing. It says, he went up from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now, what is this telling us? Is it just telling us that Jesus had a nice day at the beach, and then he went for a hike? Okay, I mean, a lot of us, I think, would read it that way. Like, he had a nice day at the beach, and he went for a hike. But if you were to look uh, carefully, and if you were to read what Mark writes about this in his gospel, you recognize that the walk around the Sea of Galilee was a walk not on the normal side, not on the side that... Uh, the Jews would be familiar with, but Jesus ended up going on the east side of the sea. He went on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he did his walking. And then he went up on the mountain, and the mountain's nondescript, but he went up on the mountain and he sat down there. And again, it doesn't sound like much, except that it sounds like Matthew chapter 5. In fact, that very sentence uh, is what starts off Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you remember, Matthew chapter 5 is Jesus' most famous uh, teaching. It's a Sermon on the Mount where Jesus spells out for the group. He spells out for everyone listening what the kingdom of heaven is like. He had already said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. But then in Matthew chapter 5, he tells us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so whatever is happening here, we have to connect the dots between Matthew chapter 5 and the kingdom of heaven and what's going on here when Jesus goes up on the mountain and sits down. So he's replaying that so that we will connect the dots and realize that Jesus' actions here Enfold with the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus is connecting for us. So we are to infer that what is happening here is kingdom activity. Where Jesus told us about the kingdom in Matthew 5, he's showing us about the kingdom here. And so he's on the east side of the see, and he goes up on a mountain, sits down, presumably to teach. And then we see in verse 30 what happens. The great crowds come to him, bringing with them lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others, and they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind sing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, I don't know if Jesus never got around to this sermon he was going to do. 
Maybe he was going to repeat the sermon and just never got to do it because it got preempted by the crowd coming with people who were broken and needed to be healed. And people brought their friends, they brought their family, and they said, here, you need to see Jesus. Sort of that way. I think it's, that's kind of a passive or plain vanilla way of reading the text. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them lame, blind, crippled, and they put them at Jesus' feet. One of the reasons that I called these people throwaway people earlier is that the, the word that's translated put them at Jesus' feet is not a word for put. It's a word for throw. It's the same word that we see in chapter 27 when Judas had betrayed Jesus and felt guilty about it. And he took the silver and he threw it back into the temple. These people are being thrown at Jesus' feet. It's as though somebody's carrying them and they go over and they say, Here, Jesus, he's your problem now. They're throwaway people. So they threw these people at Jesus' feet. I mean, it was, I suspect it was chaotic and disruptive and Jesus probably never got around to this sermon. People threw them at Jesus, and I think you're supposed to notice the problems that the people had. So if you look there, you'll notice that it's not listed just once, but the problems are listed twice. It's as though from one verse to the next, we can't remember what the problem is, so he says it again. Isn't that interesting? That they're blind and uh, mute and crippled and lame and... Then the blind see and the crippled walk. and um, What is going on? Why does he have to go through the list twice? Well, I think, I think the list is there twice so that you notice the list there twice. So that you like stop and say, hmm, I notice that he's making a big deal of this. Why would he be making a big deal of this? I think it's likely that he's making a big deal of this because those particular uh, uh, physical ailments are mentioned in the Old Testament. As a highlight, when you see this, you should look for the person who heals him to be the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, is the text to which uh, it refers. And Isaiah 65, or 35, excuse me, verse 4 starts this way. It says, Say to those who have an anxious heart. Now, tell you what, you start that way, I'm going to listen. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Waters, for the waters break forth in the wilderness, in streams, in the desert. 
And it continues then in ver- down in verse 10. And it says, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's as though Isaiah is saying, pay attention. When you see the lame walk and the um, mute sing and the deaf hear and the blind see, someone special is going to be here. In fact, it says here, Behold, your God will come. There will be this expectation that when that happens, when those kinds of healings happen, you should expect the Messiah. And that might be the cause for the crowd then to wonder, right? Your Bible says that, uh, and they wondered. Now, (laughs) they wondered. What did they wonder? Like, I wonder if he's the Messiah. Maybe. Maybe they said, I wonder if this is Isaiah 35. Maybe they wondered that. Um, I don't know. But most every time this word appears in your Bible, it's translated not wonder, like questioning, but rather marveled. They marveled. And you think about that, they see the, the blind see and the lame walk. And, um, yeah, they're going to say, wow. I think that's what they were doing is, wow. Because wow is the response that fits this the best. And so they wondered or marveled at Jesus. And then what? In the very last sentence, you have to see the last sentence, because this is the key, this is the key uh, hint here, I think, in the whole text. And they glorified the God of Israel. Well, of course they did. The, Isaiah 35 said the God of Israel is coming when the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. Of course they're going to glorify the God of Israel, but this is the only time in the gospel that it calls God the God of Israel. These people glorified the God of Israel because I I believe that they recognized that he wasn't their God. He was somebody else's God. He was the God of Israel, not their God. But that the God of Israel, somebody else's God, had now come. And he had come and he had met the broken, he had taken the throne away people, and he'd healed every one of them, and now the God of Israel was here. And so they glorified the God of Israel. Again, I I see that as a key hint that the crowd was not made up of Pharisees. I (laughs) I think it was outside the surveillance of the Pharisees. That the, the crowd is not made up primarily of Jews for whom they wouldn't need the description, the God of Israel. The crowd is made up of outsiders who are outside of Israel and recognize that Israel's God had actually come and now made them whole. 
So they glorified the God of Israel. And so whatever's happening here, this message of the kingdom, right, where Jesus is going to sit down and deliver the, the nuts and the bolts about what life is like in the kingdom, he was going to do that for Gentiles. He was going to do that for outsiders. He was going to do that for people like you and me. In other words, he healed these Gentiles and these outsiders as a way of communicating to us that you can be included in the promises of the Messiah. And then we're told in verse 32 that Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I don't want to send them away hungry so they don't faint. So the disciples say, where are we going to get enough bread? Jesus said, how much do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. So he said, thanks. He gave them the bread. They gave it to the people and everybody ate and was satisfied. And there were 4,000 people, 4,000 men plus women and children. And again, I have to ask myself the question, why do we have the feeding of the 4,000? No one talks about the feeding of the 4,000, right? Because Jesus fed the 5,000. If he fed 5,000, what's so great about 4,000? Well, that's just small potatoes, right? So no big deal. But still, it's here. Why is it here? All four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. Only Matthew and Mark record the feeding of the 4,000. Why, why repeat this? I mean, and if you're going to repeat it, at least start with four and work up to five, so then we're really impressed. Don't start with five and like, ah, well, now there's four. We've already seen the dis- We've already seen Jesus multiply bread to feed thousands. We've already seen the disciples try and figure out the logistics. We've already seen leftover baskets of bread, haven't we? Why then do we need to hear about Jesus feeding 4,000? Well, I want you to notice some of the details because I think the answer is it's related to what we've seen so far, but it's related here to the details of the text. How many loaves did he have? They had seven, right? How many baskets did they pick up? Seven, okay? Didn't pick up, before he picked up 12. Now they picked up seven. You say, wow, seven, 12, 12 is better than seven, okay? Um, hold that thought. Jesus initiates this one. The other one was initiated by the disciples. They said, send these people away. We can't feed them. We don't know what to do. Jesus this time says, I'm not going to send them away. I am not going to send them away. Let's figure out how to feed them. And so, what is happening here in this repeat miracle? This is what I want you to file away. Jesus is doing the same miracle in a different place for a different crowd. Jesus is doing the same miracle in a different place for a different crowd. Okay, and I, 
Um, that's, that's, I think, the point. Because the first time, with 5,000, the crowd was a crowd of um, Israelites, a crowd of Jews. So, Jesus feeds them all. There's 5,000 of them. And they pick up, what? 12 baskets of bread. How many um, tribes are there in Israel? 12. Okay. He picks up 12 baskets reflecting the fact that Jesus is more than enough for the 12 tribes of Israel. But here, he starts off with seven, and he ends up with seven baskets. Now again, 12 is better than seven. Okay, there are two different words for those baskets. This is like a lunch pail. There were 12, maybe a big lunch pail, but a lunch pail, a smaller basket that they would carry with a backpack, you might, you might think, backpack size. Here, they had seven baskets, just so you don't think that he got fewer or less bread, big baskets that they would haul fish in, big baskets. So seven of those. The amount left over doesn't matter. The fact that there are seven probably does. Because seven, and you'll, seven is a number, like 12 is an important number, because that's the 12 tribes. 40 is an important number, you see that lots of places. But seven is an important number, especially throughout the book of Revelation. You see that, that God does things with the number seven, and it represents fullness or completion. It represents, you might say, the perfect number. And so what is being communicated here when Jesus does this second miracle is not merely that Jesus is enough or more than enough for Israel, with 12 baskets, but rather that Jesus is enough or more than enough for everyone because they are a mixed crowd. And the number seven says Jesus is enough. So this mixed group has been healed. Now this mixed group has been fed. And these Gentiles are the ones who praise the God of Israel who can do that same thing that He did for Israel for them. This same miracle for different people in a different place. The reason we have 4,000 in addition to 5,000, is Jesus is now communicating that, yes, in fact, those outside Israel are included, that Gentiles are included, that there are no ethnic boundaries to the promises of God any longer. You'll notice that Jesus starts this whole thing off with what? Look down at your Bible. He starts it off with compassion. Jesus does this to show His compassion. And I think that's super interesting because that's not the way that I would expect it. I think a compassion is something you have for one person. You see someone suffering and you want to relieve that suffering. You want to show them compassion. But, Every time that Jesus shows compassion, He does it 
for a crowd. In Matthew and in Mark, every time it talks about the compassion of Jesus, it's talking about what he has for a crowd, which I think is very interesting. There's one person that asks for compassion from Jesus. That's fine. But really, every time Jesus shows it, it's for a crowd. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is that Jesus has just already dealt with this, hasn't he? He was sitting there ready to tell people about the kingdom, and they were throwing people at his feet. And they were healed before they bounced. And they're healed, and one after the other after the other. And it was only when the crowd was hungry (laughs) that he had compassion on them. Anyway, I I might be one of those disciples still mystified a little bit at Jesus. But I want you to realize, though, that I suspect Jesus is able to look at a crowd and see things the rest of us can't see. I mean, we can maybe look at a crowd and see someone who's lame or somebody who has some other malady. That's one thing. But Jesus is able to look at people's hearts and recognize the problem is not the physical problem. I think even really the problem is not merely that they're hungry. But Jesus, in chapter 9, he had the same thing. They cast out a demon, and a mute man spoke, and everyone marveled, just like, uh, just like they did here in Matthew 9.33. The crowds marveled. Nothing like this was ever seen in Israel. That's the Israelite crowd. Now we have the same thing over here. All these people are thrown at Jesus' feet, they're healed, and everyone marvels. Then there's this fight about uh, casting out demons by the prince of demons. And then in chapter 9, verse 36, he says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It really was their spiritual condition that prompted his compassion. And so Jesus then has compassion in the crowd. He feeds them. And um, they are um, satisfied. There's seven baskets left over, and we're all left scratching our heads at Jesus. I think the disciples in particular, the lesson they just had been confronted with was up north, this woman had a demon-possessed daughter. They said, shall we send her away? She doesn't belong to us. She's not part of our group. She said, Jesus didn't say anything. But later, as she pled with Jesus, he said, okay, your daughter's well. She went away and her daughter was healed immediately. And now, this same lesson, they're learning again, aren't they? Those people who are on the outside, Jesus will welcome them if they come. Those people who don't have part with Jesus, he'll now include. And let me just tell you, let me just remind you, all of us were on the outside at one time. Every single person starts off not belonging to Jesus. Every one of us started off at a distance. 
And we looked at the, maybe the other people who had Jesus, and we said, I wonder, if I come, will he accept me? Like the song we sang earlier. If I come, will he embrace me in his arms? Or will he know what I've done? Will he know that I'm not qualified? Will he keep me at arm's length? Because he knows I'm not worthy. We've all had to ask that question. And here, now, Jesus settles once and for all, both by healing them and then by feeding them, that the outsider is welcome with Jesus. And that's been the message all along. The hand-washing laws, uh, they're gone. The Jewish customs are no longer necessary. Jesus is here. He goes north to heal this Gentile girl, only to remind everybody that sees it and hears about it that yes, her faith, even the faith of an outsider, can bring them in. And the crumbs that Jesus gives are enough. And then you have the Gentiles flock to Jesus to get healed, and then the they're fed with the same heavenly bread that's available to the Jews. This is the key. They're fed with the same heavenly bread that the Jews received initially. And so the hospitality of Jesus extends beyond just those who are religious. The hospitality and generosity of Jesus is for everyone who will come. The outgroup is now in. The broken are now made whole. The hungry are now fed. And the door is open to all who will come. The qualifications are not the qualifications of the Pharisees. That you wash your hands and you do the sacrifice and you get it all buttoned up. The qualifications are simply your brokenness and repentance. If you are broken and you turn to Jesus, He will embrace you in His arms. The only thing that stands between you and Jesus is your willingness to come to Him. Now this feast in the wilderness. This feast in the wilderness points us ahead, doesn't it, to another feast, to the great feast in heaven, what Revelation describes as this wedding celebration between the Lamb or between Jesus and His church. You see here in this text, the great cause for celebration is not that 4,000 people or more ate a meal, and then got hungry again. The great cause for celebration is that this is a picture of the generosity and hospitality of Jesus that will one day welcome all of those who will come. There will be a heavenly feast where you will be with Jesus and you'll never be hungry again and there'll never be a tear again. So Jesus offers us this invitation.
I hope you will not be too good to accept the invitation because you will not be too broken to accept it. He will accept you when you come.